Good morning. Um, I'm Jansen. So today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, if you do not have a Bible currently, there are blue Bibles under your chairs. So that will be, we will be on page 356. Uh, if you currently do not have a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible home with you as that is our present to you. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, for you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will be spread abroad to the left and to the right, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will, be, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the earth who he called, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not be depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed, not, com not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate and your gates of carbuncles and all of your walls of precious stone. All of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and the great shall be at peace of the children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from opp oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it, is sh for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises, in, rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jansen, great job. How are we doing this morning? Great. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to preach this wonderful passage. It was a fun week last week. <clears throat> Our church had two weddings going on, and I got to officiate both of them. So we got a lot of people uh, in love and getting hitched. Here's what's interesting about doing weddings. I used to be a high school teacher, and like you didn't always have to come out with, like, what do you do for work? Unless somebody asks, what do you do? Um, oh, I teach high school math. And then people fill in with their opinions about public education and all the ways that <laughs> kids are the worst. When you officiate a wedding, there's a target on your back. You're the religious guy. You're the holy guy. And then you hang out in the after party and the reception, and you're the religious guy. And I've noticed a shift and I've just been able to sort of articulate the shift. So here's what it used to feel like being the religious guy. Some of you know that. You're the religious person at work. You're, it used to be primarily about judgment. Oh, you're the church person. This is where judgment or, originates. 
from you. Like I got saved at the end of high school. My best friend was a guy named Preston. We used to party hard together. And then I became a Christian and I partied less hard. I was the D-Day most times and I was like the religious guy now. And I'd tell him about church, invite him to church. And he always say something along the lines of, I can't go to church. If I walk in that building, I'll be struck by lightning. Here's what I've realized. The Preston mindset is not the majority anymore. So when I officiate a wedding and I come out of the closet as the religious guy, most people don't think, oh, there's where judgment's coming from. That's still a part of it. But here's where it's now shifting. I'm the irrelevant guy. I'm the unnecessary guy. Because religion, God, anything transcended above us is irrelevant. Why? Because I'm pretty good. I'm fine. Me and my boyfriend got a plan. We're living together. We're both working. We got big, big plans. We got this in place. We got this in place. I'm good. I don't need whatever it is you think is so important from that book that you claim to be so special. The shift has gone from I don't want to be judged to I don't really see any need of whatever it is you might be selling. And there's just a hint of not a hint, a whole lot of pride in the assumptions on that side of it. The assumption that I'm good is a big assumption. Here's what we're going to read in this passage and we're going to hear preach this morning is God, Christianity is primarily this. It's a religion of reversals. Meaning, at the heart of Christianity is the recognition that there are people that need great reversals in life the broken, the destitute, the barren, the poor, the marginalized, the paralyzed, the sick, the hurting, the overlooked, whatever it may be. There are people who need their story to be reversed. That's the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of all great movies that you love. Like Aladdin's my favorite movie of all time. What's Aladdin about? A street rat who becomes the prince. Married to the princess of all the land. That's a good story. That's why it lasts. Me and my wife just drove up the flag and we gave our boys some of the classics from the 90s our day. One of them was Angels in the Outfield. If you have not seen it, it's a must. What is Angels in the Outfield about? It's about a great reversal. Childless, I mean, parentless orphans. Little boys, all they want is a dad. And this team, the angels, all they need is a little bit of hope. And the story intersects the manager of the angels with these boys who are orphans. And it ends, if you haven't seen it, spoiler, here's what happens. The manager at the end adopts these boys and says, I want you to come to my home. I'm going to be your dad now. And it's playing in the minivan. My boys are watching and I'm driving and I'm just messy. (laughs) Just a hot mess. Why? Because at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of every aching heart, whether you claim Christ in this room or not, is this hope that at the center of this universe is a force or a person or something big enough and good enough to reverse even the most irreversible seemingly stories. Amen? That's what Christianity is about. It's about reversal. Here's my big idea. The story of God's people has always been about surprising and grace-filled reversal. So if you got your life figured out, just so you know, you're going to be very bored. If your life is set for the next 20, 30, 40 years, you're set, you're good, this is going to be a very boring message. It will have no application to your life. But if there's any part of you that says, I hope there's a God 
who can step into my thing, my life, my mess, and turn it around. This message is for you. Isaiah has these beautiful images of reversal. Here's the three, if you're a note taker, here's the three reversals that he walks through. We're going to look at the barren one. We're going to look at the shameful one. And we're going to look at the afflicted one and how God reverses those three realities. So I want to pray and just give our hearts time to open up to what God might say to us this morning. So let's pray together. Father, each Sunday morning is the coming together of so many different stories. So God, you know all the stories. You've written the stories. You're writing the stories. You will complete the stories. So God, just again, in this moment, speak by your spirit in very real ways to remind us of this great, gracious news of the gospel that reverses even the most desperate situations. So Lord, we love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we all say, amen. All right, reversal number one is the barren one. I want to read together just so we get our bearings in the text, and then we're going to talk about what we just read. So chapter 54, verse 1 through 3, let's read. Just to give you context, we got two weeks left, and it's Easter. Xavier did a good job getting the date right, so two weeks away is Easter. So we have two more messages in Isaiah, 54 and 55. So this is like Isaiah landing the plane. Here's what I want you to leave with people in this poem that has lasted since chapter 40. So chapter 54, verse 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your Stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. How is Israel being described here? Two key words, barren one and desolate one. Barren, what is barrenness? Unable to reproduce. What is desolate? I looked it up. Here's just a very sobering definition. Desolate means depressingly empty or bare. So the first image we walk into as we open this text this morning is barren, desperate, depressing, inability to produce that which you're supposed to reproduce. He's talking about the people of God. And what image does he use as he unpacks this? It's simply a barren woman, a woman specifically who cannot reproduce. And just this is going to be intersecting with very real pain in this room which I'm 100% aware of. And I just want us to acknowledge that on the front end. I also want us to acknowledge the fact that the Bible, when it wants to illustrate desperation and hopelessness, one of its go-tos, if it's not its go-to illustration, would be that of a barren woman. Which, if that's you in this room, which we've got a lot of people pregnant, and we've got people not pregnant who want to be pregnant, we have people who have walked this road before. The Bible uses this illustration. So if this is you, just the Bible sees you, the Spirit sees you, God sees you, and the pain you're experiencing, it, God's with you, and he gets it, and he uses it. For us on the outside who can't acutely understand what that's like, 
to understand hopelessness and desperation is that of a barren woman. Proverbs talks about it like this. It says things in life that never say enough. Three things are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. Sheol, that would be death or eternity, hell. The barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. So you get that? There are a few things in this world that just never say enough. And it's desert land, it's a forest fire that won't stop, it's hell and eternity in the afterlife, and it's a woman, women, who want to have a baby. And for whatever reason, it's not happening. That is a, that's a Mount Rushmore of pain that you're on. And that's the illustration God uses here as a barren woman. He doesn't just talk about it in Proverbs. It's like the story of a lot of the women of faith, Abraham and Sarah. She's old. She had gone through the grieving process. So she was so old, she had you know, been angry. Whatever the stages of grief are, you're angry, you're this, you're this, and then you're settled with like, this is reality. And God shows up and says, oh, by the way, you're going to have a baby. And what does Sarah do? She laughs in God's face. Why? Because she's barren and she's old and she knows how reproduction works. She's like, this ain't happening. Fast forward, like you turn a couple pages and then you're in another story of a barren woman. You got Jacob, marries two women. Leah, not so pretty. Rachel, gorgeous. Leah's having child after child after child. Rachel is barren. Who's the one who's having the terrible life? Rachel. Why? I want a kid. She goes to Jacob one day and says, give me a child or just kill me. And he says, am I in the place of God to do such a thing? Where's that coming from? A barren woman. You fast forward a little bit more. One of my favorite stories in the whole Testament is a girl named Hannah. All I want is a kid. All I want is a kid. She goes and she prays. Her husband sees her praying and all these emotional prayers. She's like, are you a drunk woman? like, no, I'm a barren woman. I just want a son. And she prays, God, I will give you this son. Whatever it takes, give me a son, and I'll give him back to you in worship. And that's the kickstart of a lot of the Old Testament stories with David and the kingdoms. Where does it all start? Does it start in a war room? No, it starts with a woman desperately crying out, God, answer my prayer. Give me a child. I am barren, and I don't want this anymore. What image does God want fresh on her mind? is a barren woman. I do want to take just a second. I heard a mom describe her daughter recently. She's like, all she wanted from the earliest stage is to be a wife and a mom. And rewind 50, 60 years ago, that's just taken as like the assumption. Fast forward to this day and age, you say that in certain contexts and it's going to be like, Really? That's it? The levels of scorn and mocking. I just want to say from Scripture, the Bible, God would say that is a good thing. That's a good desire. And the barrenness that women experience as their body is not doing what they want it to do is tied up with good desires. Biologically, psychologically, physiologically, God wired you a certain way to want that, and it's a good thing. Now, I'm not saying here is what the ultimate status in the kingdom of God is. A married woman at a young age with 17 kids and the 19th on the way. But those of you that desire this, just know it's a good thing. It's a God birth thing in you. 
and cultivate that. That's why it's such an anguishing, painful thing as we go to Scripture looking at this. Now here's, this is not a message about pregnancy or miscarriages, which me and my wife have gone through. It's, it's about Israel. Now what does this barrenness have to do with Israel? Here's what it has to do. What's so painful about being barren? It's your body, your mind, your heart, your soul is wired in such a way that this is the obvious thing that you want to do. It's like a core piece of what you want in life. It's what you were made for, you would even say, some of you. I was made to do this. Well, fast forward, now look at Israel. What was Israel made for? What's Israel's purpose? If they're barren and they're not fulfilling their, what was their purpose? Here's their purpose in two summary verses out of the Old Testament. In Exodus, it says this, you shall to be, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Of all the nations of the earth, they're all great, but you are the holy nation. You're the set-apart one. You have a specific calling. Unpack that a little more. In Isaiah, earlier in this poem we've read, here was their calling in life. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. What's your, you're to be a holy nation and a light to the world. That's your job, Israel, period. You have a simple job description. Be set apart and be a light so that the whole world might look on you and praise your Father in heaven. That's it. However, you are barren. You have failed. You're in exile. You have no home. You have no light. And you have forfeited your holy calling. That's it. Now, this is a story of reversal. Now, what would you tell a barren woman in your life? Here's what I know. My wife's been through this. You're going to get bad advice. Most of it not from bad intentions, just stupidity and lack of wisdom. You're going to get some good advice. And you're going to get sympathy from people who have been through an and or experienced the spirit of Jesus in them to actually be present in that moment with you. But there's no like clear path where I'm in this and I want to avoid all, you're going to get dumb advice. I was a giver of dumb advice because I'm a dude, which means my gender has endless blind spots and a very low IQ socially, especially with the other gender. That's just what it means. But here's what I know would be really dumb. And this is a Christian move, is to sort of overemphasize. Yeah, but God's going to give you more than you can expect. You sure? Because here's, here's where I'm settled. Like, I don't know what he's going to give you. And here's where I've landed. It's sort of minimal words, sympathetic presence, and just like, ah. Because I have no idea what God has for you. You don't have any idea what God has for you. Just That's the reality of barrenness. That's what makes it the thing that says never enough. It's like this never ending, my gosh, I was made for this, and I'm not getting it. Like, what are you doing with this? Here's where I have to fight, though. Part of it is us going through our own three miscarriages, back to back to back. It's like, gosh, what is this? And then you start to, it sort of becomes like the car you're shopping for. You see it everywhere. Now I just see it and I feel and I hear about it. 
and people going through the similar stuff, my wife especially. And my heart has to fight getting cynical and like, I just don't expect God to do a lot. That's me. It might not be you, but I sort of scale back my expectations to fit with the reality that I'm experiencing. I'm reading this great book on spiritual discipleship and sort of how it works with aging, and I, I think it fits this moment. Here's what he talks about youth. Here's what youth is. So youth, I defined it last service, and I think it's spot on, is 0 to 34. So that, if that's you, uh, you're young in my eyes, and I think the Lord's with me, so we'll go with that. Zero. The youth gets together its materials to build a bridge to the moon or a palace or a temple on earth. Pause right there. You see? Let's get our stuff together. What are we going to do? We're going to build a bridge to the moon. <laughs> a temple on earth. It's youth. Like, what are you going to do with your life? I'm going to travel the world. going to have six kids. I'm going to buy seven houses. <laughs> I'm going to rent out three of them. I'm going to let my mother-in-law move into one of them, the furthest away. I'm going to retire at age 36. I'm going to be that cool grandpa, but serious grandpa, like the perfect, I'm going to be all things. And then midlife hits, and he says, rather than all that, here's what happens. The middle age concludes, let's just build a woodshed. <laughs> Meaning, I don't, for, for me, and this is, well, just lower your expectations on the whole kid thing, or, or foster. I don't say this. I'm just saying my, the heart work. You would expect God, who is the greatest counselor in the universe, to land somewhere similar with hurting people, namely a barren illustration being the illustration. He goes the opposite end. He does something I did not expect. What does God say to the barren woman in this story. Let's read verse 2 together. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. What does he say? Build a bigger house. You're on Whatever miscarriage number, build a bigger house. That's not what you'd expect to happen there. If you're like a decent human being and God just goes there. It's like when we're going through our stuff and we're just trying to survive and keep our head above water and my dad shows up one day, he's in the backyard and he's building away. I'm like, what are you doing, dad? I'm building an add-on. Why? For all the kids you're going to have. <laughs> what are you talking? That's what's happening in this. Build a bigger house barren woman, that just seems missing the mark. Or God is a God of reversal, and he wants to enlarge in our faith. This is not build a bigger house and fill your bank account with stuff. This is speaking to Israel, a people who had failed in their role, and the earth was not being filled with the glory of God. And he's like, just so you know, build a bigger house, because I'm bringing some more people in this place. Build bigger bigger, bigger, bigger. Like, which, who defaults to that sort of thinking? I'll tell you who. There's a lot of them at this church, and they're all like this tall or shorter. Like Ozzy. I had a minor medical emergency. I had allergies flare up on Friday, so thank you for praying for me. Uh, 
And I'm just a mess. I'm like, I can't take this any. What am I going to do? Call the doctor. Can you give me all the steroids? Yep, let's put them all everywhere. So I'm like, oh, I'm recovering Friday. I've got a wedding I'm thinking about. It. I've got sermon. I've got all, this, all these things in the house I want to get done. I'm just frazzled. And Ozzy's like, Daddy, how do you spell trampoline? I'm like, <laughs> T-R, how do you spell football? F, oh, and he's writing an orange marker, and I see him, he's covered in marker, all over his lips, all over his hand, and he had created a list of what him and dad were going to do. We're going to play on the trampoline, we're going to play football, we're going to play catch. Ozzy has no concept of my limitations. Money-wise, time-wise, affection-wise, love-wise. And God, as you meet him in the scriptures, he's always pushing us towards an Aussie mentality and not a jaded, cynical, 40-year-old man perspective on life. And you're like, that's hard, I know. But that's what this text is trying to get us to do. Build a bigger house, Israel. I've got more people to invite in. And then what does he say in verse 3? Here's the promise fulfilled. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. These promise will come true. Israel, build a bigger house. And what happened? Just to give you perspective, we're in the year 2023 on the other side of the globe, far removed from this cultural moment where God is promising to a very specific people, Jewish ethnic people in the Middle East, hey, build a bigger house. I've got more people to join in. And we are in Phoenix, Arizona, in a gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving church. Why? Because this promise was spoken to Israel many years ago, and God speaks promises, and he keeps promises. That's what happened. Build a bigger house. I'm not done with you. I know you're not having kids like you think, but the day is coming. Now, Isaiah could have stopped there and like dropped the mic and I'm out. That's enough. But he just keeps going with the images. Image number two of reversal. Now he talks about shame. Let's read this together. And just to get context, let's read verse four all the way through verse 10. Reversal number two, the ashamed one. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord God has called you like a wife deserted, grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer." This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so that I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That is beautiful. What's the description of Israel. Simply, they're ashamed. He uses a few words, ashamed, confounded, disgraced, or reproach. Just to give you, here's what ashamed is, a feeling of inferior or unworthiness. Confounded is confused and perplexed, often to the point of exhaustion. Disgraced is you're feeling discredited and feel like you've fallen from a place of honor. 
And then reproach is the constant feeling of disapproval or disappointment on you. So the image was barrenness, now it's shamed one. He, she, they who feel inferior, unseen, overlooked, like they've fallen from a place of honor. Just sort of the three negative emotions all of us navigate. And if you never step foot in a church and you just go see a counselor or therapist, if they're good at their job, they're going to help you navigate these three things. Here's what they are. Guilt, fear, shame. Just to give you like my simple man's definition, guilt is I do wrong. My actions are wrong. What I've done is wrong. I haven't done right. I feel guilt. Fear is I am surrounded by wrong. You're in a situation, you're in a world, you're in a family, you're in a marriage, and the surroundings are wrong and you feel fear. Or what we're talking about in this is shame. I am wrong. Xavier talked about last week, I'm the problem with sin, yes. Shame goes beyond that and says, no, everything about you, your core identity is wrong. And all of us navigate those three all the time. And we pay for counselors, and we come to church, and we hope that something gets fixed. But those are the problems with humanity. Shame. What's another way to talk about shame? There's a guy named Kurt Thompson, really great Christian leader, psychiatrist, who's helped a lot of people understand shame and attachment more. Here's his definition of shame. It's the emotional weapon. Remember that. It's an emotional weapon. That evil, Satan and all that goes with evil, uses to do what? Two things. Corrupt our relationships with God and each other. So shame keeps us from God, keeps us from each other. And second, it disintegrates any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. What's that mean? Any sense of purpose or hope or Psalm 139 says, fearfully and wonderfully made you are. Any idea that you're like a special, unique person, shame smashes and keeps you from ever feeling like you are worthy of anything. And that's how Israel's being described here. They are the shameful ones. They are inferior. And what images does God use through the prophet Isaiah? Let's look at verse 4. In verse 6, it's still a woman as the illustration. Now it's a marriage that's centerpiece. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. Here's the description. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For the first image is a widow, a woman who has lost her husband to death. Verse 6, he talks about it even more. For the Lord God has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So two images, a widow and a deserted wife in her youth. What's the fear there? What's the issue? It's a, a picture of a woman wondering if she'll be loved by a husband ever again. One instance, he's deceased, and the other instance, he's left, or she's been cast off for her wrongdoing. And here's where the Bible, just its beauty amazes me all the time. But in this particular instance, God could have really taken this image of a wife who's been cast off because of her unfaithfulness and just really colored it in. You track with me, he's like people that have experienced or been a part of adultery and unfaithfulness. Like there's two things. It's the, what happened and why you did and all that sort of the past stuff. You could, people could really harp on that. Your spouse or people around you or your own self and your own thoughts. 
or there's the current reality of like, how do you live with yourself in light of the fact that that's happened? God could have camped out here yet again, and he would have been just, I think. For example, early on in the book of Isaiah, this is how Israel is described. Oh, the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. So Isaiah kicks off with this image of Israel being an unfaithful spouse. And now we're at this pinnacle of this beautiful chapter. And what's the image? Is he going to take that imagery and just really flesh it out and camp out on it? Remember what you're like, Israel. God sort of turns his back on that, and he talks to the present moment. And he's talking to a woman and how she feels about the fact that she wonders if a man will love her again. That is insanely gracious. We are sinners. Israel was sinners. God could have kept hitting that button. Instead, he stops, he pivots, and now he says, I want to talk to you. I want you to know this. Let's not worry about that. I mean, that's just from an artistic standpoint. What, what that shows of the heart of God like, let that sink in. The Old Testament is the part of the Bible that critics and people, and some of you maybe in this room, have a big problem with because God is so angry, and he's always blasting people and destroying people. He's also here talking to a people group that's been unfaithful to him for hundreds of years. And he sort of like puts that on the shelf and says, but how are you feeling? That's bonkers. Nobody loves like that. Unless you open up your Bible and you meet him who Israel rejected. And what does he want them to do with their shame? Very simply, verse 4, let's read it again. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. Here's his hope. For you will forget the shame of your youth. Pause right there. What's he tell Israel to do? Forget that. That's crazy. And some of you are like, like trying to wonder, is, is he talking to me right now? And I would say yes. Christianity tells you, forget that. Forget it. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Forgetting what is behind, I press on forward towards the upward call of Christ Jesus on my life. The Apostle Paul, we don't know about a sexual infidelity, any sort of sin on that way. But we do know this. He was a murderer. He would kill early Christians in an attempt to stop Christianity from spreading so that Judaism could stay the true and right religion. And now Paul gets converted in this crazy story. And now he goes to all these synagogues with these Jewish people and all these places where Christians are at, and he tells everyone about Jesus Christ. And I just guarantee you he ran into people, family members, friends of those he killed. And he writes down, forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the upward call. And he's teaching in moments, and he's meeting people who say, you know, Stephen was my cousin. If you don't know Stephen, he's the guy who murdered in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul standing by, sort of like mob boss, signing off on the death. And Paul has to face that which he did, which is shameful all the time. And Paul can also embrace a gospel so big and a God so full of reversal grace where he can say, forget all that. Press on. Forget the shame. That's, that's Christianity 101. 
Not like uh, downplay what you did. Not sort of uh, just exist in the moment so where your mind can get easy, whether that's alcohol or weed or whatever it is, might be your thing to sort of quiet your mind based off what you're full of shame for. Christianity says, no, literally, leave shame behind. Leave it behind. It's gone. Forgetting is behind it, press on. Like part of my story, I used to think, because I grew up kind of Catholic-ish, you're like, oh, that sounds like me. So I had this moral picture of God who was like, right, wrong, right, wrong, right, wrong. And I was assume my story into Christianity was dealing with the right wrongness. And I look back and I think, no, that wasn't my story at all. I would go into places, situations, people groups, high school, whatever it is, and I always felt like inferior. I felt like I was the most forgettable person in the bunch. What's that? That's shame. And then I meet Jesus and he takes away my shame. And now I walk in with this otherworldly confidence. So me like, you need to tone it down a bit. <laughs> but I still have echoes of that. Like, I don't know. I'm pretty forgettable. Forgetting what is behind, I press on. How do we press on? What does God tell us in this? Let's just read verse 5 and 6 to hear how God describes the love that's going to remove the shame. Verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord God has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your guard. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion for you. How do you leave behind shame? You have to embrace a better Story. How did I get to leave behind my shame? I trusted the story that Jesus Christ was telling about the world himself and my life more than I trusted what was going on in my mind. And what is he telling Israel? I'm your maker. I'm your redeemer. I love you. And whatever just happened, talking about the Babylonian captivity, he's like, just so you know, it's a very temporary thing. In verse 11 and 12, he talks about, well, let's just read it together. Verse 9, he wants to give him an illustration to understand what just happened to them. 70 years of captivity. This is like the days of Noah to me. And I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. If you don't have a memory verse in your mind, that would be a great one. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. How do you get rid of shame? You meet a God who says... Even if the whole world crumbles, my covenant love for you will never be removed. Oh, shame-filled widow, I've got you. I love you. And then he goes on to tell about the future that we're still waiting for, the final reversal, reversal three, the afflicted one. Let's read this last part together. Verse 11, oh, afflicted one. Storm tossed, not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles. What is all that? We'll explain. And all your wall of precious stones. And all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, far from fear, from terror, for it shall not come near you. And if anyone stirs up strife, it's not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. And behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. 
I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. How is Israel described? What's the final reversal picture? Very simply, verse 11, afflicted one, storm-tossed. What's he talking about? The city itself. It's a city that has been demolished. What's he talking about? Jerusalem in that day, but also Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God that we are waiting for. And what has happened to it? It's storm-tossed, it's afflicted. Like, what is the best illustration? Turkey, in the month of February, had all those uh, earthquakes. My former church, Turkey, was our missionary partner. We'd go to Turkey, and we sent some pastors, my friends there, to deal with sort of what's going on there. And it is devastating. So the earthquakes cover it the, the same size as the state of Florida. 50,000 people dead, 1.3 million displaced and homeless currently. Most of those homeless are Syrian refugees who are already living a homeless life, just trying to find a little break. And the government is so corrupt, anything you try to get done there is just going to like collapse. What's God saying? That's what I'm talking to, this afflicted city, Jerusalem. This is what it was. What's his promise to Jerusalem and to us? Verse 12, he says, I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. I'm going to build you a better city built with antimony. What is that? It's metal. It's like Black Panther, vibranium. It's the unstoppable metal. It's like Googled vibranium. Is it real? And then the first Google searches, you might be searching vibranium because you think it might be real, but no, it is a Disney construct for a movie. I'm like, oh, I used to teach high school. (laughs) I'm going to take the strongest metal and build you a city and the most beautiful jewels and sapphires and rubies and diamonds and I will build you a city. It'll be strong and beautiful. What's going to happen in this city? Verse 12, here's a picture. The heart cry of all of us, if we're honest, a world centered on Jesus. All your children will be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. It will be a city with Exterior beauty, but interior beauty as well, as every human relationship will be restored and be what it should be. The Old, the Old Testament ends with this promise, which is just fascinating. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And he has this like comment, which seems like a throwaway comment in light of everything the Old Testament's been doing. He says, when that day comes, he will return the hearts of fathers to their sons and the hearts of sons to their fathers. Old Testament ends. What's he saying? There's coming a day when restoration will happen relationally and it'll be perfect. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. In verse 14 through 17, uh, let's look at verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. There will be no more enemies. Interior enemies, exterior enemies, no more cancer, no more pain, no more wars. There's coming a day where nothing that could go against you will go against you. That's what we're waiting for. Now, what do we do with these beautiful reversals? What do we do with these? I just want to remind you as we walk back through and we'll pray. Here's the first reversal. is the reversal of the barren one. He told the barren one, build a bigger house. And I'll say this, the house has been expanded. And some of us have been invited into those extra rooms. And that invitation is still on the table for those of you here who have not trusted in Jesus by faith yet. But part of this promise is already true in this room. 
We've been invited into the family of God. We are spiritual children, just like Israel was back then. How? By faith. What's the second promise? For those that are ashamed, what's the answer to our shame? We have an answer. His name is Jesus. Just to give you the biblical picture of where shame begins and where it ends. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Totally exposed, revealed to the whole world to see, nothing to hide. They strutted around, perfect. Sin enters the world and then shame gets spread out like a crop duster over all of us. And now it's everywhere. Where does shame end? With another naked person. A Jewish rabbi on a cross who had no shame of his own, but he said, I'll take all your shame. And he took that shame and he placed it on his back and he died so that shame could be no more. That promise is here in this room and we've got to fight to embrace it and to believe it. And then finally, the last one is this city, this afflicted city. What are we waiting for? We are still waiting for this glorious and beautiful city. Abraham is described this way in the book of Hebrews. He was given a land of promise, but he was living in this foreign land, living in tents. But he was pursuing a greater city whose builder and architect was God. That is a description of the Christian life. We are waiting for that final promise of a city of gold and rubies and perfection wherever you look. It's not here yet, but it's coming one day. And we're going to enjoy exactly what Isaiah told Israel about. Is that good news? If you have your stuff figured out, I'll say it this way, and your life is set, you don't need anything about what I just said. Because you got your life. Go do it. Go have a great brunch. Have a great week. Plan out your future. But if there's any part of you that knows, this world has to offer something more. What we just experienced is the greatest news any of us could ever imagine, that God steps in and reverses things for us. The barren, shameful, afflicted, sinful, rebellious ones. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why we gather every Sunday. Let's pray together. God, thank you for reminders wherever we open your word that it was never a moment in your plan where we would be the heroes of the story who have figured out life and been good enough and smart enough and mature enough and organized enough to where we would merit a great next chapter in the story. Your Bible And our lives and this church is a reminder that all of us so often feel like and are the barren ones and the shameful ones and the afflicted ones. And yet your gospel, your good news is that you don't leave the barren ones empty. You tell us to build bigger. You don't leave the shameful ones full of shame. You tell them to forget that. Leave it in the past. And you tell the afflicted city, the broken world we live in, that I am building a better place for you. And God, all we have to do is trust that you are who you say you are and you reward those who believe that. So God, grow our little bit of faith in our hearts and in our church this morning. We love you. Christ's name we pray.